Hello everybody, welcome to what is going to be probably the penultimate episode for this series of Colossal here on Playing With Myself on the Internet. I hope you've all been well, and before we dive into the crazy rewards that Marco, Berger, and Alice will be receiving for defeating this astrolithic rook, as always just going to do some quick announcements. First, this is not the end of Playing With Myself on the Internet. I have really enjoyed my time playing Colossal here, and have picked up a lot of other solo role-playing games. I've played Ironsworn in the past, and I backed the Kickstarter for Ironsworn Starforged when that was live. I recently received my physical copies, which for me makes a big difference. I love being able to flip through a physical book, so I might do that one. That might be next, although I know that's a very popular one, and there's a lot of examples of play on the internet of Iron Sworn and Starforge so far, so maybe I'll switch it up and keep it to slightly smaller, less known solo role-playing games. And speaking of, if you are interested in finding some great indie solo RPGs, there is a sale going on on itch.io right now for Solo But Not Alone 3. It is a collection of over, I think it's almost 150 solo role-playing game PDFs that you can get the entire bundle for $10. I will link that in the description of this podcast episode. So if it's something you've been thinking about looking into, obviously there are quite a few places to start. I've seen a lot of people who actually successfully play bigger games using oracles and things like that. But if you want a probably rules light, nice, easy introduction to solo role-playing games, definitely give Solo But Not Alone a look, and I believe that all of the money that it raises goes to a very good cause, so check that link out. Secondly, I think I'm not the only one who's going to be putting out more solo role-playing content here for the DMs After Dark. I have successfully convinced a few of the other members to give it a shot, and I think that at least Troy is working on a solo episode, if not small series. Christian recently bought Thousand-Year-Old Vampire, which is a very popular solo role-playing game, but can be played as a letter-writing game. So we may be working on something that all of the DMs will be getting into. And obviously, we are absolutely floored with the response to RuneQuest Six Seasons in Sartar so far. The Twitch engagement that we've been getting the response to the podcast episodes and the YouTube videos and all of the support we've been getting from people online. This is clearly a community that it means a lot to us that you're all enjoying what we've been putting out so far. We hope to really do this system justice. It has been around forever and Christian loves everything that he's been reading about it so far and being able to dive into it with the excitement and promise of a campaign really is exciting for all of us. So... We are so glad. We hope that you can join us on Twitch Live. We have a great time in chat. We hope, if not, you're listening to the podcast or catching up on the YouTube videos, because for our first long-form campaign, it should be pretty exciting to watch us play characters that are going to develop a little bit more than our usual short, you know, three, four episode series. But without any further ado, let's get into the recap and find out what's going to happen with Marco, Berger, and Alice in Colossal. Last time, with the help of the cultists that they met in the rafters, Marco, Berger, and Alice ascended onto the mythical battlements above. 
Outside and above the ceilings of the roomlands and the colossal itself, stretched towers, rooftops, vast open stretches of weedy grasses and struggling vegetation beneath an eternally twilight sky. Millions of stars shine in the sky, but not only stars, astrolithic rooks, waiting to spot movement on the battlements and swoop down to stop whoever it is ascends this high. After one near brush with an astrolithic rook that Alice triumphantly scared away with the help of not only the cultists, but the nomads that we met up here on the rooftops, further travel away from the broken skylight in search of answers from the cult who have promised these nomads a way down, something they've been searching for for a very long time. A second astrolithic rook plummeted from the sky above, shattering the floor beneath two unsuspecting nomads who were dragging a piece of an astrolithic rook towards safety. Unfortunately, the rooftop caved in, exposing a vast oceanic room below. Small islands dot this impossibly large ocean within the Colossal. While the two nomads scrambled to safety, Marco Berger and Alice once again did not waste any time standing up to defend the nomads and the cultists who were running to safety away from this terrifying astrolithic threat. In the combat that followed, surprising everyone, each of our players managed to get some form of attack off and Berger, in a last-ditch effort to save Marco from being flattened to a pulp, used their trusty ice magic to create a wall of ice that, upon falling on it, the astrolithic rook, while some melted, some broke, some held, and this astrolithic rook slowed down to an inert stop just before reaching Marco on the ground. And that is where we will pick up this session. Lying on his back, staring up at what was almost assuredly going to be his end. Marco looks to his left and right and sees Berger and Alice both running in his direction. The two other nomads stare in bewilderment as the group of cultists and nomads who had run some short distance away for safety also look on, stunned, unmoving. Marco slowly crawls his way back and out of the trouble that he found himself in. Alice runs up. Oh my gosh. Not only are we up here, did we just best an, a space rook? What is happening? She's like, this is incredible. And Berger helps Marco to his feet. Marco kneels down and hugs Berger. As Alice is still talking in the background, I think... While this astrolithic rook is partially impaled on this ice wall that Berger has created, I think that just perfect timing kind of thing, a small gate just creaks open and hangs there, basically inviting in our protagonists. Alice looks over at Marco and just goes, No way! This is even cooler than the one we beat up on that plateau! And immediately the three of them begin to make their way towards the inside of this massive astrolithic rook. It's about this time that at least one brave cultist or nomad and these other two adventuring nomads 
get close enough to say, are you crazy? Don't go in there. What are you, crazy? And Alice goes, are you kidding me? Why wouldn't we go in? And Marco stands there and says, I thought you wanted answers. The cultist, let's say it's the leader. Let's say it's Renine. She smirks and goes, all right, kid, you've convinced me. And together in a group, adventurers, nomads, cultists, slowly, everybody begins to take a look inside and see what it is they can figure out. Now, obviously, this thing is huge. This thing is much larger than a lot of the rooks that Marco and Berger and Alice have fought in the Roomlands below, but also probably a bit bigger than, you know, some of the rooks that even these nomads or cultists have seen. I'm going to read from the book what it says when you defeat an astrolithic rook. If you win, your reward is the husk of the rook itself, now a pilotable rook suit allowing you to become a within. Now the within is a character class that is very powerful. Those that take on the incredibly powerful astrolithic rooks and win are experienced mythic warriors, and their reward is an opportunity to become within. For a little careful manipulation, it is possible to climb into a defeated astrolithic rook and pilot it, a huge stone suit of armor. However, not only are these rooks incredibly powerful with brand new weaponry, never seen in the rooms below, but they can fly. Now obviously, from a mechanics perspective for this series, this does represent kind of a, we've reached the climax, we're in the resolution of our story, right? However, I still think that there are a few unresolved issues that we'll be able to explore, but this is going to make it quite a bit easier because the Within character class has an exploration score of 5, which is what Marco's was anyway as a followed, but has a combat score of 6. So very little is going to pose a threat to us from a combat perspective, but I think that that doesn't mean there aren't more conflicts to be resolved. Now with a Flying Rook, this is very interesting. We can avoid a lot of the terrain and exploration issues that we would normally run into. And as Marco has kind of been built as this exploration-based character who wants to decipher the details of his familial map, find out what his key does, being able to travel like this is going to make figuring out this map and all of the details about it much easier for Marco to do. Now, I think that typically this is a pilotable rook for one player, one character. But I think that for the sake of this, we're going to say that it's big enough that even if Alice and Berger can't fit inside, this thing does have those big rocket arms and, you know, hands that are usable enough that they can hitch a ride. In fact, I think it would be kind of cool, you know, when you think of... um spaceships especially i don't know why i'm thinking like star wars right now but there's like the bridge where the pilot is sitting and then there are like those gunnery stations or there are things like that maybe this one has smaller sections inside of it that um burger and alice can fit into however this reward is great but we do have to talk about what we're going to do with the cultists and with these nomads the cultists came up here for answers about whether or not this was basically the afterlife. And I think that what they found is, it is not. In fact, if you get up here, 
you're most likely only closer to reaching your afterlife by being either worn down from struggling to survive from the meager food that is available up here, or being attacked by being exposed and out in the open to these astrolithic rooks. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time to hang out here and just uh, talk and chat, so I think that even as the cultists, Marco, Berger, Alice, and these few selected nomads who were brave enough to take a look inside these astrolithic rooks are working out the specifics of how to pilot this thing, many other cultists and nomads are concerned about their being out in the open, and also, oh, this huge gaping hole in the floor that drops down to a ocean miles below. So, as this is happening, we did say that the cultists do have their gargoyles, so at some point I guess they could fly and bring people up and down and things like that. I think that there's a snarky comment from a nomad who's just like, you came in through a hole in the roof. Since we've been traveling with you, an astrolithic rook has caused another hole in the roof. I know we want to go down there, but I mean, are we destroying this entire place? Despite the attitude about it, I think that everyone is at least, while on edge, a little more comfortable with the fact that there is a way down here if needed, and they just watched someone defeat something that's probably caused their kind a lot of problems in the past. I believe that the priority right now, while Marco, Berger, and Alice see basically unlimited potential ahead of them, they do have some form of responsibility. They feel a sense of obligation to see these cultists and these nomads to safety below. Now, obviously, if they could get them all to somewhere like Rustgord, where they had previously found comfort and being welcomed, that's unlikely to happen. I think, why wouldn't we have one, at least one fun ocean exploration event, right? I think that Marco, Berger, and Alice, along with a few of the cultists who have access to gargoyles, agree to fly down the hole to the ocean below find an island and see if there are any safe places to either set up a camp, if they can find a village on one of these islands, if they can find a boat, anything like that, that would be really interesting. And then basically, we can either find these cultists and nomads a place to stay, or help them navigate the ocean to a new place. But first, let's do a quick scene where Marco, Berger, and Alice figure out how to even pilot this thing. Obviously, people have come in, cultists and nomads alike, to decipher what it is they see, and like the inside of the rook that they defeated down on the plateau in the Canyonlands, I think that there's a lot of very intricate kind of gears and cogs and stone machinery and things like that, which actually separate this astrolithic rook into quite a few rooms. But I think we should consult an oracle. I want to ask the question, are there any glyphs or strange markings or anything like that that would tie into Marco's calling? The familial key, the map, all of that. I flipped a black two, which as we know from the oracles is a yes, but it's a yes with a complication. 
And I think that makes a ton of sense. I think the complication is that there are glyphs that match up with Marco's familial map, but there's a lot of other glyphs too. It's almost like they began deciphering the language of the rooks that they found in the crackways below, you know, all those weeks or months ago or however long it was. But these are like an ancient version of some unknown language that they may never be able to decipher. But those similar glyphs are present, so that's interesting. You know what? I, I want to consult the oracles again. I know we only have a few episodes left, but let's see if how to tie this into the calling and bring it all home. Let's see if we can use one of these story generator oracles, flip three cards like we did in the rafters, and see if we can find out if there's an interesting story relating these glyphs and this key to the mythical battlements and the idea of why this could have been perceived as some kind of afterlife or something for folks of the Roomlands. Let's flip three cards. A queen of diamonds, a jack of spades, and an eight of diamonds. So let's go ahead. Story generator says, a queen, stop. Jack. A locked door to another room. And then the complication or the twist is clue to an ancient mystery. You can't make you can't make this shit up. So oh man. So Marco's familial key. Stop a locked door to another room. Maybe these glyphs. And these keys and these symbols, they're not about accessing the rafters. They're about locking things away. Oh my goodness. All right, so that's how we're going to bring it all back. But first, we need to fly down to this ocean and see if we can figure out if there's anywhere we can help these cultists and nomads find a new home. I think the easiest way to do it is just jump right into it. We're going to be using the core book of Colossal, and we're going to be consulting the Ocean Encounters table. So for exploration phases within ocean-themed rooms, uh, I'm going to say that Marco, Berger, and Alice, along with these cultists, I'm going to go ahead and flip five cards for an exploration phase. Basically, this is going to represent flying down and finding a place somewhere here on this ocean. Now, some of these cards might not be relevant, but I think I want to experience them, so we're going to flip anyway. So here goes. Our first exploration phase in an oceanic room. Flipping our cards, we have an eight of spades, an eight of hearts, a king of spades, a two of diamonds, and a nine of diamonds. So, as always, we're going to go in ascending order. Our two of diamonds says... Another seagoing adventurer in their own vessel. They can be friendly or not friendly. Because we drew a red card, they are not friendly. It says, if not friendly and you choose to fight instead of flee, consult the combat rules and create a person opponent. Check the weather. So this is a feature of the ocean exploration rules, is that weather out in the ocean where there aren't always places to find shelter or safety is going to affect things. So... Obviously, we have another seafaring vessel or something. Um, maybe that's people on an island, too. We'll see. 
Um, let's go ahead and flip for weather and see what happens. I got a two, which has strong winds. A good wind takes your boat where you want to go quickly. Okay, so leave that there for a second. We have a hostile NPC. We have two eights, both a black and a red eight. So that means we're going to read the eight and get both of them. Shallow waters and underwater ruins. If the weather is good, you could drop anchor and swim down to investigate. Now, there are strong winds. I think that's probably safe enough. It says here, if it's a black card, there's treasure to find. And if it's a red card, there's rook parts to find. I think those are both good. That's awesome. Those are both good things. So I'm going to put that aside. We have a red nine, the nine of diamonds. A small island. It is red, so it says it is inhabited. Consult the base rulebook for what you find here for one exploration phase. Okay, so we're going to build a small village, and maybe that's where this unfriendly NPC is, actually. And then lastly, we got a king of spades, which says massive rook. Okay, I think I know how we're going to handle this. I think that this unfriendly NPC is actually mad because we probably lured a massive rook here to this small island. There is a shallow, maybe a toll, maybe there's reefs or something like that, and that there is wreckage and treasure to be found there. Oh, maybe they've left it alone. Maybe it's their superstitions that it's supposed to be there. Leave it alone. There's rook parts there. There's treasure there. And we land there looking for a place to just find safety potential for these cultists and these nomads. We've flown down from a hole in the sky, which to them is probably a scary enough event as it is, and now we're bringing a massive rook. So, okay. Let's go ahead and have a combat from the within. Like, let's, let's go full in on this, right? We're going to fight a massive rook. We're going to defend this city, but we're going to make enemies doing it. And then we'll build this island village, see what we can get there, see if it's somewhere that these cultists and nomads can stay. And, or, we've made an enemy and they aren't welcome here. But first, let's deal with this massive rook. Alright, unlike previously, I'm not going to use Alice to give us any additional combat scores. I think that, for the sake of this fight, the cultists on their gargoyles are mostly going to be running interference and distraction. They don't want to get too close. They know to let us handle the scary parts. And for the sake of this combat, we're going to we're going to say that this is very much like a spaceship where Marco is at the helm and maybe we have Berger and Alice who are there to basically aim other weapon attacks. We're all working together to figure out how to keep this thing in the air. Let's go ahead and build this rook. I'm actually not going to bother building the NPC, who it says is not friendly. It says I can fight or flee, but I think that they're probably going to flee, but we're going to use that not friendly tag as more of a roleplay event during the... It's going to be a modifier for how the town deals with us. So let's go ahead and build our rook. We have a massive rook, which is going to, you know, have... It says battlements, balconies, and rooms. I think maybe this one... I think this one's so big that it just kind of like emerges from underneath the water, almost like volcanic islands emerging. So we're going to flip to see magic and body type. We got a queen of spades, which says that it does not have magic. Maybe it did, but being submerged underwater for so long has kind of short-circuited all of its machinery. 
we're going to flip its body type. We got a an ace, which is a one, so that means it is an attack type rook. Highly offensive, comes in close and fast with damaging melee attacks. Maybe this was a underwater rook that was like a scourge of ships and things like that. All right, we're going to flip two more cards, what type of weapon it has as far as ranged or melee, and then the reward we would get for defeating it. If we are flipping, we got a 10, which means that it is a melee combatant. Yeah, so this is like a Kraken Rook. And then lastly, the reward that we would get is a spade, which says Helm. We've gotten a lot of Helms. But you know what? I think that this would make sense. I think it's like a Sonar Helm, like an underwater. That would be kind of cool, actually. All right, so we're going to flip our six cards for combat against this Rook's five, which is crazy. Yeah, once you get an Astrolithic Rook and become a within, I, I can't see how this game doesn't kind of start to wind down. And I know that this series has been wrapped up neatly, but this is a pretty cool way to end it. Let's see. We have a five of hearts, a three of clubs, a king of diamonds, a nine of clubs, a jack of clubs, and a nine of hearts. So we do have some low cards in there for this fight, but again, we should have one more card than the opponent has anyway. So that's an automatic success. And if you remember from the Astrolithic Rook fight, they have slightly different attack types. We have lasers and cannons and rockets, and it's going to be crazy. So we have our cards there. Let's go ahead and flip the first card for this Oceanic Kraken Rook. And it gets an Ace of Hearts, which is the lowest card it could use. Hearts are a magic attack, which we determined it has none. So I think that this is almost like a misfire as this thing emerges from the waters. The people of the village are panicking. Marco, Berger, and Alice quickly kind of pilot this astrolithic rook, which also, should have thought about this, the village definitely thinks is probably coming to attack them. There's no way we can be like, hey, we're friendly. But maybe this is going to buy us a little bit of help as we turn and we're going to use our lowest card. Obviously, we're going to use our three of clubs, which our club says flying attack. Remember, this is what scooped Marco and dropped him to knock the wind out of him. We are going to swoop out of range of the attacks of our enemy, only to swing around and lash out at it as we fly back. So I think that, yeah, we flew by it and then the town freaks out. We get another one of those really cinematic shots of the town terrified of our flying rook rising out of the waters behind our rook is this enormous sea scourge of a rook and our heroes turn around quickly fly right back at it and as it was trying to do some kind of magic attack that probably wasn't going to work we just smack it upside the head and it is slightly off balance and out of sorts so that is one out of one that we have defeated it flips a king of hearts now we can't beat that but we do have a king, which can make it a draw. So we're going to use our king of diamonds, which diamonds for an astrolithic rook says rocket attack. I think that this thing reaches out and tries to grab us as we're flying by it. We try and fly and punch and fly away. And I think it grabs us. But we use our, we turn. And I think Berger does this, where Berger has caused a bunch of rock and ice to solidify to our astrolithic rook and he just shoots it out like a rocket once again hitting this thing and it lets go of us but it doesn't do any real damage to this kraken 
So we have four cards left. They have three. They flip a four of diamonds, so a diamond attack for this rook would be a creative attack. I think it's going to splash and attempt to cause water to basically get in the way of us flying away. But we have attacks as well. I'm going to use our five of hearts, which says grab attack. So as it smashes the water and water begins to shoot up in a wave that should stop us, we just get, oh, this works out. Alice, who is used to using her harpoon gun, kind of her grappling hook shooting arm, kind of has set up this rook for something similar. And she has like an extender on one of the arms. And it just extends out and grabs a piece of this rook. And what we do is we fly up over the water, pulling it further out of the water, once again becoming unbalanced in the sandy shoals on the outskirts of this island. So we have one, two of three. We flip another card for it, a seven of hearts. Again, this thing is flipping a lot of magic. It probably relied on it in the past, but this salt water has just ground its abilities to minimal. We're going to use our nine of clubs, which is our flying attack. We've got it grabbed. I think we just yank this thing fully out of the water and we're ready to like fling it out to the ocean. It has one more card. We have two. It flips a six of spades. And before it can even get an attack off, we're going to continue using clubs with our jack, flying, flying, flying away, and depositing this rook, this massive rook, out into the ocean far away from this island. That was an incredibly easy combat just because we have our own flying rook. That is insane. Very fun, I won't lie. You know, sometimes when you're just playing a game and you're like, ha that was just, you know, a beatdown. It's nice. Obviously, if this was the beginning of the campaign, there's like no stakes to this. But towards the end, that's kind of neat. Now, let's see what this village is all about. Revisiting the city building rules of Colossal, which we have not done since Rust Gorge, we're going to build this nice little island settlement and see if we can convince these people to help us or harbor our nomad and cultist friends. As always, we do take four cards out because every settlement has at least these four things, which would be a hunter's guild, a tavern, a merchant, and a housing district. I do think it's funny that there's a hunter's guild out on this remote island in this oceanic room, but at the same time, we don't know what this ocean is near, what mainlands it's near, if there was potentially previous trade or anything, but that's what we're going to find out now. Now, typically, we would flip four more cards to make your typical city. I think this island is probably a bit smaller, so I'm only going to flip three cards as opposed to four. I still want to see if there's anything interesting here, but I don't think it's reasonable to be like, this is the size of Rust Gorge. So here goes three more cards. We have a four of hearts, a three of hearts, and a seven of clubs. All right, let's see what these are. A three of hearts says a rooksmith. Toiling away in their mount garages, rooksmiths work on the mechanical parts of rooks and convert them into vehicles or mounts to be ridden upon. Now that makes sense, because technically, in this ocean encounters and exploration part of this book, they say that you're going to either need to find somebody who builds boats, or somebody who can make mounted that can go to sea. 
So I think that this person is a rooksmith, but they're also basically someone who's going to build a boat. Our four is cartographer. This works. Of course, you're going to need to know where your island chains are, your way to trade with other islands and the mainland. So we have a cartographer. That's awesome. And our seven says a rookling crèche. Oh, so somewhere on this island, there are rooklings. Okay. Now, if we interact with any of these, we'll make an NPC for them. But first, I think we should just make one NPC, and it's going to be this not friendly person who probably raised the alarm, saw us flying in, saw us make all this trouble for them, and we'll have to deal with them first. So let's flip our three cards. We get their name, their look, and their characteristic. For their name, we flip a five of diamonds, which says Sorik. Their look is a ten, which says big. Oh boy. Sorik is a big guy. And their characteristic is three weary. Hmm. Okay, so we have a big, angry guy who is weary. Not wary, which would make sense. He is probably that as well. But I think that he is just tired. And we probably did not allow him to do any form of island relaxation when we flew in here with our astrolithic rook causing a massive rook to cause trouble for the island. Yeah, this person is not a fan of our entrance. And he looks and says, no, I don't know who you think you are, but you can't just fly into this island and think that you can take whatever it is you want. And landing and emerging from this astrolithic rook are two teenagers in Marco and Alice and a small little rookling in Burger. And I think that his tension somewhat breaks and he just goes, what am I looking at? And Alice just goes, hey, wow, this place is nice. You mind if we hang out for a little bit? We have some friends. And he just says, no, no, no. Hold on a second. Who are, where did you? And Marco smirks and for once is going to take the lead and just say, Alice, I got this one. And he walks up, holds his hand out to shake Sorik's hand and says, hi, I'm Marco. This is Burger. And that's Alice. And it is really nice. To be back in the room lands. And I think that Sorik's face just kind of. The bewilderment is impossible to hide. While he's not a big fan of us, he was a not friendly NPC, I think that maybe there's a little bit of hesitation to invite these nomads and these cultists into their society. Island life is probably pretty balanced around everybody's abilities to carry their weight and provide and things like that. And it's probably pretty difficult to take on more people. But let's consult the Oracle and see what it says, whether or not this community would be willing to take on some more people. As always, a reminder, red cards are no with degrees from no and it's worse to no, but there's an upgrade. And black cards are yes from yes with a complication to yes with a bonus. So we're just going to flip a card and say, will this island take on nomads and cultists if they chose to stay? We flipped a black card, which is a yes, just a flat yes. Yes, they will. 
it's probably a conditional, they're going to have to carry their weight, but it is a yes. So with that information, I think that the cultists who have access to these gargoyles, as well as Marco, Berger, Alice, are going to make trips up and down to this hole in the ceiling above this oceanic room that leads out right to the battlements, which is crazy. But obviously flight is a difficult thing to access here, so unlikely to really be something that um, is taken advantage of by anyone in the future. But once it's mapped and known, this could be a really crazy thing for the Roomlands. But anyway, as nomads and cultists are finally brought to an island where there's relative safety, I think that there's a few things we should do. It's funny, in other games of Colossal, I'm sure people are going on much less spanning adventures and treasures and coin and things like that probably add up and are pretty interesting. Marco's had like almost no opportunity to really do any trading or cash in on his one Hunter's Guild quest that he actually finished. We've really not been able to enjoy the city building and the quest by quest kind of nature that this game can provide. But now that we're back in one, I think that we should probably visit what's here. Obviously beginning with that cartographer. Flipping cards to make that NPC, we have a jack for their name, which is Tora. Their look is a four, old. And their characteristic is three, weary. Maybe everyone on this island is just a little tired. But she's also old, so that makes sense. So we have Tora, the older cartographer here on this island. It makes sense. She's been here. She has probably seen many adventurers come and go and find new islands, explore, looking for new places to trade and fish and all of that. Now, I don't think she's ever seen anything like what Marco is about to bring in to her small little village abode. The book says cartographers will pay two treasures for a map of a new area, but it's got to be one that the cartographer wants from them. Obviously, Marco can do this. They can fly over this whole ocean room in their astrolithic rook and chart out this entire area, which he absolutely offers to do, as he is going to probably do anyway, looking for a way back to familiar lands. However, he also provides her with the maps that he made of the crackways, of the canyonlands, of the pillar within that plateau with the strange glyph on it, as well as the rafters and the little bit of the battlements that he managed to map above. Now, for a small island old woman, this is not going to be something that she can compile and make money to live out the rest of her days on, nor would I imagine she want to. She is weary, she is tired, she's just living her life on this island in relative comfort. But I do think that. Marco knows the value of maps and takes the time to make copies of what he has done for her records and also trades information about what she has about the islands, makes copies for himself and promises to go out and double check the accuracy of her maps and things like that. The two of them have a good conversation and basically the reason that he visited her was to see if she could help point him in the direction of places he's been or come from. 
Let's go ahead and see if she does know. We're just going to flip one oracle card, red or black. It is a black six, so that's just yes. Yes, she knows the way towards these other rooms where Marco is speaking. So that's good. Now, I know we flipped a Rooksmith and a Rookling Kreish. I don't see the need to visit them, although I do think that we could stop by the Rookling Kreish and see if there are any other Rooklings with glyphs that match the familial map of Marco's. So again, just a quick oracle flip, red or black, yes or no. It is an ace of diamonds, which means no, and it's worse than you could have imagined. I think that these Rooklings... I think they just don't look great. And I think that's unfortunate. I think Berger really feels for them. I think that I'm not sure. Maybe it's this salty water. Maybe it affects magic in Rooks, right? We saw that that massive Rook couldn't do its magic attacks anymore. Maybe these Rooklings aren't as particularly powerful or anything like that as others because of the nature of the island and where it is that they can harness whatever kind of magic, rookstones, etc., they use. Maybe it's just not as effective here on these isolated islands. That's kind of sad. Well, on that note, I do think that multiple cultists most likely stay. The flying gargoyles are probably very helpful as far as sending messages and things like that from island to island. This rooksmith is able to build waterborne rooks and mounted and things like that so that way the island will continue to do what it has done i think that some cultists and some of the nomads decide not to stay on this island but i don't think that's marco Berger and alice's responsibility any longer this rooksmith will build them the means by which to go back to mainlands and things like that once they've basically earned their transportation I do think we should make sure that we get that treasure and that those rook parts from the small atoll that we rolled for earlier. But I think that we're actually going to give them to the island for housing these people that we have brought to them. And then I think it's time for Marco Berger and Alice to fly over the ocean in the direction of familiar lands in the roomlands. Oh boy. Um, just for fun and to do it, I think we're going to flip one more exploration phase in the oceans, and then we're going to arrive at a place where I think we can wrap up everything neatly in our final episode. So five more cards, a five of clubs, a four of clubs, a ten of clubs, a five of spades, and a six of diamonds. All right, those are some cards. All right, the four, the black four that we flipped, says, An island with the telltale crenellations of a castle around its perimeter. Could it be that you're just seeing the very top of a huge rook below the waves? And because it is a black card, that is a dead rook. So yes, I think that this was probably a massive rook, similar to the one that we just helped that island defeat. And, you know, maybe I can share news uh, with that island at some point in the future, let them know that this could be a good fort or something like that. There is still crenellations of a castle, maybe defendable kind of thing. We got two fives, both of which were black. And it says here, a huge seagoing creature is swimming just below the surface. Maybe it's leading you somewhere. Maybe you could hunt it for food. Check weather. Now we got two of these. Both of them, it says it swims past your vessel. 
So they're not a threat. Plus we're flying, so it's not that big of a deal. But we are going to check weather. And we flipped an 8. So it says water spout, a column of water twirling with wind heading towards you. Okay, so maybe it's like some kind of magic whale. And it comes up, blowhole, psh, but it actually creates like a water twister that we're going to have to avoid. We do so. We're in a flying rook. Come on. We're pretty amazing. Our last two cards are a red six, which says a sea cave large enough for your vessel to enter. Huge cavernous like an underground river leading from one cavern to the next. If it's inhabited, the creatures you meet are not human. It is inhabited because it is red. What non-human creatures could these be? I don't want to make like a fantasy race up out of nowhere nine episodes into the series. So what I think it is, is caverns that lead to something like a crackway, maybe. Underground caves that lead out into another room. Oh, and maybe it's another one of those strange-sized rook communities, like we met in the crackways of our original, like, session two. Oh, wow. Okay, let's see what this 10 is real quick before we do anything. A coastline, if you decide to disembark, return to the base rulebook for ongoing exploration phases and check weather. It is unguarded. We check for weather, and it says a crosswind, but I'm not worried about that. Okay, I think that this sea cave is on this unguarded coastline, and it is basically a crackway. It's basically just where years and years of tides have created a small little sandy shoreline along what is otherwise like a wall of this oceanic room. But there's a crack in it, and it is a crackway. And we're going to go back into the crackways, which is perfect, because there are questions to be answered in the crackways. Remember way back in session two or three, Marco found a staircase that had his one of those familiar glyphs on it. That might be worth exploring. This might hold something of the same. And if we can use crackways to get into another room. Ooh, this is interesting. And I think it's a great place to call this episode maybe a little early. But it's going to give me some time to think about how going into this crackway, going into these sea caves, is there a way we can tie in the crackways between the rooms, the rafters above the rooms, the battlements above the colossal itself, and whatever these glyphs are designating pillars and similar structures. Maybe we can bring it all together, or at least leave a good questionable cliffhanger next time. Thank you all for joining me for another episode of Playing With Myself on the Internet, playing Colossal by Nick Angel, a wonderful solo role-playing game with a lot of replayability, great classes, wonderful art, very evocative, very fun. I hope that you've been enjoying this. I hope it has inspired you to play some games on your own as well. If you like what we do here, please do follow us on all the social medias at DMs After Dark. Check us out when we go live on our Twitch streams every other Friday. We're going to be running RuneQuest for the foreseeable future, running Six Seasons in Sartar, the campaign. And so far, it is going really well. We're getting great feedback. We're getting a lot of great engagement from people in Twitch chat and online. So maybe check it out. It's a great alternative fantasy game if you are one of those people who are 
looking for something else as D&D continues to kind of stumble through this OGL nonsense. Otherwise, again, sorry for the name, but now I just got to go with it. And um, until next time, get out there and enjoy a little island time. Have a wonderful night, everybody.